Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, and I'm Craig Shapiro. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Under Review, and I am thrilled to have you with us. I'm also thrilled to have with us former player, former coach, current announcer, tweeting monster, Brad Gilbert. We're going to talk with Brad about the greatest week of his pro career, his proudest coaching moment, and find out who he says is his Freddy Krueger. We put Brad on a exercise ball in the gym at the Malibu Racquet Club. This is Brad Gilbert, uh, everybody. I don't even know what kind of introduction you give him. Former world number four, uh, coach to Andre Agassi. I always maintain that Andy Roddick's greatest mistake was... I'll just stop you and just say, the older I get, the better I used to be. To keep things moving and hit a wide variety of issues and stories, we're going to try a five-segment format, best of five. But because this is the prolific Brad Gilbert, we're going to throw in a warm-up session and talk about his coaching career. How would you describe your coaching career? Well, first of all, I got to thank Andre for giving me the opportunity when I was playing. I, I started coaching Andre in Miami 94. I lost third round that tournament. He got to the final. Um, and he, I was ranked ahead of him. I had lost to him the week before in the quarters in Scottsdale. Not like I forget things. I'd like to think of whoever I coach. I, I think of coaching in a simplistic way that it's day one. It's a, you start as a blank canvas, and it, whatever happened in the past doesn't matter. What, what we can make is moving forward, and I don't take player A, G, and F and try to make the, the next Roddick, the next Andre, the next Murray, the next Roddick. You work with each player's strength and individuality, and your whole goal as a coach is to try to make them better. You try to make them better, and hopefully they'll fulfill their dreams. A lot of times you talk with Andre, and you would key on something small in the stat sheets. I'll give you one. This is my favorite coaching moment, um, maybe ever. We were looking at the stats August or September of 94. And it was like, it used to come out like on the ATP in like the paper format. And looking at the stats, Andre's on, you know, first or second on every return stat. So I want to see the serve stats. So I look at the serve stats and I say, Andre, you're in 30th place on holding serve at like 65. And he's like, that sucks. And I'm like, if you can get to 10, finish 1995 getting to 10, all of your dreams, what you're thinking about, what you want to achieve will be in place. And he looks at me and he goes, that sucks. What the hell would I want to be 10 for? And I said, listen, you're 30. Let's get to 10. So the entire focus of 95 was I'm going to hold surf. And it was about, you know, almost a year or maybe 13 months after he said that, this is incredible. He was first place in holding serve. And I actually was thinking when I said that, you know, on a level, if he, you could go from 30 to 15 or 30 to 20 is a big move. And I was thinking going 30 to 10. It was one of the greatest things I've ever got to watch. This is the first set. We want to talk about the off, our off-the-court report. Have a lot of interest. Um, in talking about your Twitter account. You have somehow, in my opinion, become the most interesting tennis tweeter. Uh, how did it start and uh, what's the story with that? Um, when did I, I don't even know how many years ago I started, but it seems like a fairly easy platform. You can please people and annoy people and they seem to be able to relentlessly ask me questions. I, I start getting annoyed now when, when people can Google the same, you know, the answers that they ask me. 
but you know, you engage everything and everyone in a way that is just unbelievable. You enjoy it. I mean, I do, I do, you know, Sometimes I probably do it a bit too much, and then it, people think that if I miss one or two people, when I get hundreds of questions, that people think, why aren't you answering mine? You know, they get bent if I miss it, or I answer too many people. Uh, I just try to have fun with it. I try to be real. I'd like to think I'm that beer-drinking guy who loves tennis. I mean, you've already tweeted at least three or four times this morning. I mean, you come right out of the box with it. I mean, what's your routine? I mean, I wake up and let's say I'm drinking coffee, uh, you know, I'm watching CNBC or I'm watching tennis. Uh, I look at there and there's already like a list of questions people ask me. Sometimes I tweet a thought or something, obviously my own, um, or it's about a match or it's about something that, that's interesting to me. Um, and then some, if, if I don't tweet something, you know, I, I try to answer a few questions. When Brad has a problem, when someone's out of line, he throws them a yellow card. A and yellow then card. often a yellow I mean, if it's really bad, it's red. And then, you know, if it's like egregious, you're blocked. What's an example of? I mean, something will annoy me. Somebody's take, somebody's kind of um, opinion that's over the line. You know, something has gone personal, you know, about somebody or about something or about your take. And so I, I never swear at anybody or take an outlandish opinion. Obviously, I have my strong opinions about guns and, and a few other things, but you can't call people out in a manner that is absurd. And when you do, what happens? That's a, that's a red. If it's really like you're looking at this person, it's like you've done it a few too many times, that's it, you're, you're blocked. You've been at the game, you had too many beers, you accosted somebody, you got the hook. You just give them the hook. That's it. That's it, shut them down. You know what it is, I just enjoy trying to be me with my nickname sometimes. Some people love them, some people hate them. I mean, somebody said in all their years of TV the other day, you know, I'm calling the match, and Lord Drysdale said, that's a let? And I was like, no, that, that was a phantom let. I said, what do you got ears like Inspector Cluzo? And somebody said to me, in 40 years of something, never heard an Inspector Cluzo reference. I was like, I loved Inspector Cluzo. Does your dog bite? No. And then the dog bites him, it's like, it's not my dog. Moving on to set two, it's the hardcourt season. And I think Scott and I are interested to learn who you think can win seven matches. On the men's side for it. No, no, I want to talk about the women first. Ladies first. Um, Let's be polite about it. The, the, the women's, um, you know, the story's much more broad. I might have given you 15 names besides Serena that could win Wimbledon. And based the way that she had been playing, I probably wouldn't have given you Kerber. And, and the women's too, I mean, Halep and Stevens both played really well up in Canada. I think both of them have been playing well. I, you know, without seeing the draw, a lot of times you, you don't know how things unfold. So I, I, it's hard to make a prognostication, but I'll still say on the women's side, 15 could win it. But there's only been five ladies that have won seven in recent, right? There's Muguruza, there's Halep, there's Serena. There's Wozniacki. Four. There's Ostapenko, but she's, she's nowhere land. No, but I, that's how I feel actually how women's are, that all of a sudden, boom, she could just pop up and win. When Muguruza won Wimbledon last year, she'd been, just been struggling, was ranked 16. Had, had played poorly on the grass. So I do think in the women's, I, I'm gonna say it's who can get hot. On the men's side, it's a difficult thing. You can't just, oh, I'm gonna get hot and win seven, 21 sets. So I, I'll still say at least 15, and I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden, it, it, it was a Halep or a Stevens. 
You know, uh, maybe Wozniacki turns her game around. Maybe Serena, um, and it's one of these young players. I, I think that that. Um, who do you like? Okay, the, the, who do you, do you, who? Wait, what do you think about Osaka? What do you think about yeah. Kazakina? It, I mean, look at all the upsets we had at Wimbledon. So, I, I'll just say that expect something like that again. That's a trend, and I think that the women's game right now to win the tournament or make a deep run is it, it's a lot closer uh, between you know one and forty, one and fifty. Somebody can make a run. It, 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 like Ostapenko winning the French last year unseated. You'd feel like that would be just absolutely remote happening in the men's at the moment. Um, you're not gonna. You're not gonna give names. Who do you? Who, I mean, what, what, I, mean, what, you, what, I mean, you mentioned names, and, and I'm saying there's a bunch of young players. Look at like Kazakina. She had a great run at uh, Indian Wells, uh, and so did Osaka. So like, if all of a sudden something like that happened again, um, uh, one of the OVAs, one of the OVAs. There's, you know, that covers about 20 probably in the top 100. I, I actually feel like with the women's, it's like, until I see the draw, then I can prognosticate and look and have a thing. And then still you feel like there'll be one or two quarters that'll be completely blown up at just how it is. The, it, it, you know, it's kind of cool in a way. It's sort of a fun product, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. That like, how are you gonna, pre look what happened in Stanford. The Stanford final was the, the, the lefty, um, who won her first um, title. Um, Buznarescu. Yeah, Bu Bu Buznarescu beats Sakara at Stanford for her first time. So I just think um, if something happened, like, wow. And I'd say, okay, that's, it doesn't surprise me. Are there, have, are there any players that you like? Does there any, are there any players? I mean, there's some young Americans that are gonna be really good. Amanda Amensova, and I think in a couple of years, Coco Goff. She's 14, and her skill set is outrageous. Uh, movement, every, I mean. Coco Goff, by the way, um, is a highly touted junior who, from what I understand, Roger Federer's uh, group, Tony Godsick, his agent, they signed her. Oh, they did? Well, give, give a golf club. If this, she, she's the real gonna, deal. She's the real deal. She's athletic, um, movement, skill set. Um, so I think by the time that she's the end of a teenager, 18, 19, wouldn't be shocked if she was making a big move. And, and Emin Sova you know, is uh, really good. So is another young American, Whitney Oswego. So I think on the American women's side, there's a bunch of young ones that are coming. And I think that's really exciting. And I think they're going to start doing good things at young age. Nice. Moving on. Moving on. Let's talk about the men. Listen, who can win seven? We're just not seeing. So if you take the big three and say, what would be the odds of the 125 other guys winning the tournament? And that was the field. I'm thinking 75% chance, 77.832 that one of the big three wins it. And if that does happen, this is amazing. There'll only be seven active guys on the men's side that have a slam and no one will be under 30 because Delpo and Chilich are just about to turn 30, and they're the youngest players active at 29 with a major. And it seems like Delpo's last slam was like, what, 500 years ago? Uh, nine years ago. Yeah. I think it, you know, he is probably one person from this generation. Had he not got hurt early in 2010, 
I think that he probably would have won at least five. Maybe, maybe the big three wouldn't have had so many. Why? Did you see him beat Fed and Rafa at the 2009 U.S. Open? Kind of self-explanatory. I think I meant just like X's and O's when you look at 2009 Delpo. What was what was that package like? I mean, we see we see flashes of it now. It seems like he has a no, hard time uh, staying healthy. Except for he can't hit his backhand anywhere near the way he used to be. He used to be able to have a you know backhand like um, similar, almost like an Andre type backhand. He absolutely ripped the backhand cross court, and that was a beautiful shot. And only it would if he would have continued to do that and bomb in his foot. The guy, he 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 left him on the table with injuries. And injuries from technique, would you say? I, mean, I, can't, I can't give you that. I mean, you're I not mean, a doctor. Yeah, I mean, it, it just really unlucky. If you, I mean, he was 20. He was big. He was strong. You know, he's at, I mean, athletic, moved great. Technique looked good. Every, but sometimes you know you can be unlucky. Unlucky. Um, I mean, what, so do you don't. So you don't think that the, that that Zverev can break through, huh? I, I just said. That it's a probably a better than a three quarters chance that one of those three will retain will win the open, but there's no reason what Zverev wouldn't be in the next mix. Can he beat two of those three guys in back to back matches? You know, a lot can happen in a slam. Let's say if you don't have to beat two of them, maybe you only have to beat one of them. But I think the hardest thing for anybody to do is to beat all three of those guys. It just, the, the, the ask to beat those guys and how consistent they are at the end of the business end of slams, that's why it's incredibly difficult. Um, he would definitely be in the mix. I hope that we get one of these guys 21 and under to make a quarters or semis. I think that would be fun. You know, Pass played great in Canada. Love to see him make a run, Dennis make a run. Let's just stop on, let's stop on Pass just for a moment. Could you just break him down? I think we know his story, but still somehow we haven't been able to figure out a way that the people on television can see the the height, the 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 level. It, it just I, doesn't I'll, I'll break him down for you a little bit. See, people give me a little bit of grief on, on Twitter about, you know, I, I came up with Sitsy Flash. You know, one a lot of people want it to be Sitsy Fly, I don't like, or Tzatziki Sauce. You know, one of I actually thought of this morning was Easy Pass. Easy Pass is not bad. He's six foot five, tremendous mover, very athletic. Um, he's kind of a mix, you know, between Grigor and Fed, with a lot of the similarities on the on the swing and technique on the backhand and the arch in the back on the serve. But I like the versatility of his forehand. He has a great inside in, inside out. Um, got a you know really good one handed backhand. Uh, and I like his upside a lot because I think he can improve a ton on his serve. And I think that there's a lot of areas he can get stronger. He, but the first two things that jump out, 6'5", about maybe 185, beautiful mover and can finish at the net with really good technique. So that's a lot to love right there. Last year, um, big expectations for Zverev at the Open. He lost early. Um, it seems to me that these guys are not... They just don't somehow have the gumption to win best of five set matches. I mean, you guys used to play a lot more best of five set. It's not the gumption. I mean, you only play best of five now, only in Davis Cup, only in majors. And the big thing is that the guys are consistently at the business end of the slams. And 
whether or not it's pressure, it's expectations. Big thing is for those guys, if they are a little bit off, they find solutions to get through. And if you're a little bit off or you're a little bit tight or somebody, and it happens. Um, that That's how I put it. And, and the way I think in my brain as a commentator, as a player, as a coach, yesterday ain't coming back. The only thing that matters is tomorrow. And too many people get caught up in what hasn't happened, what should happen. It's like, worry about that particular match, what happened, what can we learn from it, what can we move forward? But blame the big four for being so consistent for so long. And, you know, at least the big three at the moment don't show any signs of slowing up. So that's just a tremendous mental hurdle that you have to overcome. Moving on to our third set, you know, um, Scotty and I were looking at your your stats from uh, your career and we forgot or we didn't realize that run you made at Cincinnati. You beat four Hall of Famers and three world number ones. Um, you just talk about that? You know, it's funny is I can barely even remember. Um, yeah, I remember. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I bet you can I was remember. staying at this little, uh, it, back then they didn't you know, really have a nice hotel. It was almost like we were staying at this motel. And I finished like against Chang. Well, hold on, so why don't you go through your tournament? I beat Pete, I think, in the round of 16. He was young, you know, but you knew he was maybe 18. 18. But amazingly, the same kind of player exactly that he was a year later, he added about 12, 15 miles an hour in a service. Like, man, can't you have given me a little bit of that? Um, so I got through him in a fairly tight match on a hot day. Then I played Friday night. Um, and I don't, I think we might have been for some reason scheduled on the grandstand. And Chang is coming off of, you know, the French Open. And his ranking is high and, and he's all of a sudden elevated his game at a young age. We had like four or five rain delays and didn't finish till like 1.40 in the morning. And I remember eating like with my coach and he was like, you know, very grounded. It's like we, we were eating like, I think at Perkins. It might have been like the only thing that was open. It was like... All right, how are we gonna get through for tomorrow? Um, and then um, I, I played like really solid match against Becker. The crowd was awesome. Since he's such a fun place to play, unbelievable. Do you remember your score? It was funny, 10 years ago, I could have remembered every point, but now honestly, like, you know, I can go to the ATP website and look at it. I wanna think maybe 6-4 or 7-5 in the third. I'm gonna have to check it. We don't. I don't have. That's pretty here. bad. But like six, four, seven, five in the third. And I remember in the final against Edward, we were rain delayed, like three, three and a half hours. And I remember when we got out there for you. You know how sometimes that you don't know how long it's gonna be, and got out there and it was a million degrees. And there's this picture up in there. For those who don't know, Cincinnati is a swamp yeah. in that tournament. It, it, let's say it was 90 and like high 70s humidity. It is the hot, hottest. It, it's, it can be sticky, really sticky. And for sure, I either didn't hydrate up enough or eat enough, but I was hanging on fumes in that match. Ended up winning, I think I hit a, a really good return to win it, 7-5 breaker in the third. And when I went to shake hands, I remember like almost seeing two or three Edbergs. You know, it was like I had the spins. And 
in the trophy ceremony. I was like massively cramping. Kim handed us our, uh, our son, Zach. I tried to hold him for a second and I was like, I was like wobbling. I'm gonna like, I passed him back. I was like, I'm cramping. So now in that, in that, that's on, but that's unbelievable. In that, in 89, was that a super nine? Is that what that was that? The next year they made it a super nine, but it was a huge tournament because it was actually called the ATP Championships. And if you won it, all the players would be pumped because you would get free dues. So it was kind of like a cool, it wasn't like winning some million dollars or something like that, but it was like, yeah, I got free dues. Now, is that your, I mean, is that your best effort? To that was to my best summer. You know, uh, I played Davis Cup in Germany, went to Washington, um, was in the final in Washington, was up a set and like 3-2 on Tim Mayotte. And we had like five rain delays, canceled at midnight, came back, lost the next day. I was so pissed. I think I smashed a couple of rackets, just was snapping. May I always tough me out in big matches. Then I went to Stratton, won Stratton, went to Livingston, won Livingston, went to Cincy, won Cincy. So I played just a ton. And I should have taken off and gone to New York, relaxed, chilled, but I, I was signed up to play this exhibition in Wilmington, getting to the open super late, just not prepared, got to New York the day before, million degrees, and then literally like ran out of gas and lost in five sets to Todd Witzkin first round. Still to this day, I still like want a knucklehead. You were just thinking about playing tennis and making yeah. money. And yeah, exactly. And I was just like, Man, it, you know, it was just... In hip-hop, they say you caught the vapors. You yeah. basically were like... I think I told you this when you were stringing for Andre. I think I played either 16 or 17 matches in a row with one racket and one the same restring. And I probably changed the towel grip like three or four times. But I think on like the 16th or maybe it's the 17th match, I finally, you know, broke a string. And I never even warmed up with it. And the thing was probably... 12 pounds, 14 pounds looser. If I strung it at like 59 or 60, what do you think, it was 45 pounds? Probably lost 10 pounds on the racket. Yeah. That's funny though, I mean, that's like a club player would, you know, even a, a club tournament player wouldn't do that. I think at least, you know, I would get a couple of rackets, I'd have like two, two of them, but I never even, like back in the day, I didn't even start really doing any of the fresh string, I didn't do any of that. Brad, by the way, um, had a unique situation. He played with a Bosworth, right? Uh, Good stick. He played with a, a Bosworth racket that- Looked like a stop sign? None gener yeah, it looked like a, what did it look like? A stop sign. Yeah, <laughs> a funny shape. But he also played with this now defunct, I think it's gone, rack, uh, a grip that was like a towel. It was definitely a towel. They, you still see them maybe on a squash racket or a real tennis. Yeah. And, and the way Bosworth, I don't switch grips on any shot, and he had the grip molded. So when I would roll the towel, it almost would conform to my hand. The guy that Brad's talking about, Warren Bosworth, the original racket doctor that these pros, Lendl started it. He Yeah, he started Lendl the craze started it, yeah. to where others, you know, <laughs> got involved in doing things. And it was probably yeah. a huge thing that was really needed. The uh, fact of the matter is, is that the tennis rackets off the shelves are not exactly the same and there's a whole business that one day we'll talk about, but there's a whole business of the players on tour customizing have their, their have their rackets customized. They have them weighted and balanced. Uh, if a player is, has grown up playing with Prince and, uh, there's a, and they get a deal with head, the dimensions of the grip are different. Well, if you get six rackets 
off the factory and you don't have them customized. They could be six different weights and balances. So to a tennis player, if it's 328 or 330 or 370 or 365, it makes a lot of difference. And and as Brad just alluded to in full disclosure, uh, I had the unbelievable experience and privilege of stringing Andre's rackets and traveling and sitting with Brad in 97 and in 98. You know, 97 have, was one of our worst years. Sorry you had to go yeah, through no, that. No, I definitely, uh, I definitely have the distinction of seeing some. 98 was much better. 98 was the start That was the uptick, and yeah. I, I think I quit in Cincinnati. But um, moving on, I want to talk about uh, your match against Becker at the Open. Um, in, you know, since the U.S. Open's coming up, you know, one of the greatest matches people say there ever was and I happened to, I actually attended that match. I was there with my father. Um, you know, when I was stringing these rackets and stuff, I had to keep all this stuff in my pocket. Like I had really, most tennis racket guys are like real stiff. So, you know, I had really like enjoyed the history of the game and stuff, but I did attend that match. Um, that's, pro- that's one of the great wins. Uh, that's one of the great grandstand matches, isn't it? So normally like I do, it's about ESPN or it's about my coaching. Like, now you're testing me out, like, match, I can barely even remember them anymore. I, I remember just... First of all, what round was it? That was the round of 16. And I felt like sometimes maybe if I played low to Boris on a forehand, maybe he could get a little too much air in his, you know, approach, then maybe I could get up a, you know, a decent pass or get it below his I kind of thought about patterns a little bit. And he had a really big serve, and I felt like... He, I, I stabbed a lot of returns in play. And so I just felt like against him, it was like, if I can, make him play an extra ball. Just defend, make him play an extra ball. And if I can, sneak in the net on his backhand. I, I lost the second set. I felt like I could have won the second set. I was down two sets to none. It was about three all in the third. It was a pretty hot day as well. I felt like if you'd asked me at that point in the corner, I'm in, the corner, I'm in a little trouble here. I'm probably in a lot of trouble. I would, you know, and somehow, I eked out a third set breaker. And for the first, maybe the the most in my career, I felt like, man, this crowd is rocking. It was a fun, unbelievable atmosphere. And they were like cheering me on hard. And it was like, okay, I gotta like, see if I can, you know, find my way into, you know, a fifth set. That's kind of how you just think. And then I, I think my biggest memory of that was how incredible the crowd was. And that's an awesome court. You get the shade from the side there. And we went twilight into the evening. So it was a fun atmosphere. Your greatest win? Um, be honest with you, I think every match I won was a good win. <laughs> I mean, they used to call, I think I used to be the cooler. I'd win some of these tournaments and the next year I'd put them out of business. So. You know, I wish that if I was reborn, what I learned the most from Andre was learning how to peak for majors. I never really understood about, you know, priming and and planning your schedule to win these things, to really do better. And then once I started coaching Andre, I he totally five weeks out, what we need to do, what, how to be ready. And I was like, ah, maybe if I would have tried that, it would have been better for me. So I, Andre gave me a way better understanding of slams. It's interesting that you learned a lot from him as well um, as his coach. Yeah, learned. I mean, listen, as a player, a coach, there's so much to, to learn. And I learned an incredible amount from Andre. I mean, he was so gifted and such a pleasure to be with. And he's a complicated genius. And I'm a Chevy truck. You know, I drive a Chevy Colorado. So moving into our fourth set, 
you know, this is what we, I'm calling the 10 ball scramble. We're going to go rapid fire. We're not going to do a deep dive. Okay. Agassi. Love him. Sampras. Uh, phenomenally gifted clutch. Just tricky matchup for Andre. Labor Cup. Labor Cup. Uh, mm, innovative. We like it. Davis Cup. Tradition. In trouble? Um, like a lot of things. Larry Ellison. Wish he ran the whole sport. Wish he was the commissioner and owned the sport. I mean, God bless him that he is passionate. Look what he's done for the event of Indian Wells and now putting on some challengers. Look, he'll do this new Davis Cup. I mean, man, can, can you do 10 more timbers like this? The guy seems amazing. USTA. Um, establishment? Oakland. La Familia, Oaktown. You know, it's where, it's where I was born. I mean, you know, lifetime Oak, Oakland fan, learned to play there. Um, just La Familia. Nick Kyrgios. I mean, uber talented, uber talented. And just hopefully he can learn to use the gift that he has. Blowing it? I, I don't know him, so I can't, I mean, just, it's, it's disappointing right now. Jan Tiriak. Um, guess a powerhouse in the sport. You know, he's been in, involved in it probably for 50 something years. Don't know him that well. I ball boyed for him in Davis Cup, I think in 70 or 71 when the United States played Romania uh, uh, at Round Hill Country Club. <laughs> really? Yeah, funky game, funky game. But I mean, it's like he had a funky serve, you know, but. I'm fascinated with Jan Tiriak. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's just one of these guys that. Yeah, anyway, he did a blue court, you know. Yeah, he he's, like, but he's, he's been, a, he was a player that came out of the Iron a Curtain. Player and he, he is a, a coach, on. agent. Coach, agent, Becker, Vilas. He owns Madrid. He yeah. owns tournaments in, in Germany. Bucharest, He yeah. owns a bank called Bank of Jan Tiriak. He is a bazillionaire okay. and. He's an interesting guy to me. Anyway, moving on. College tennis. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of college tennis, and uh, hopefully, um, you know, things will, will keep moving in a positive direction for it. I mean, if I was a commissioner, the first thing that I would allow, if a kid turns pro that, and he, he wants to come back, why can't he come back and play? Yvonne Lendl. My Freddy Krueger. I mean, he's just... He was so tough to play against. He was just an animal and he just, one time I played him in Philly, the last time I played him. The whole time I'm saying to myself, no one beats me 16 times in a row. I had four one double break in the third. But somehow early in the second set, when I went wide to hit a forehand, I, I went over on my foot and I knew I did something bad. You know, I think I might've, you know, broke a little bone, but I knew I, it was not good. And end up choking an easy volley on top of the net you know, for a 5-1 lead. So end up blowing that match, I think five in the third in the semis of Philly, the Spectrum. I'm sitting on the table. I've got like two bags of ice on it. Lendl comes in he goes, you know, if I had 110 temperature, I was on my deathbed. I still don't lose to you. I'm like, that's just too good. <laughs> that's too good. He's a hell of a player though, let me tell you. Hell of a player. Prize money. Uh, keeps going up, it's awesome. And I'm not one of these players that bitter that we didn't get this and whatever. I live in the now, I live in the present. And listen, they're trying to do more for the first round, second round, trying to help the players and distribute the money. It's awesome. Appearance fees. Always been part of the game. 
you know, they've done a great job that it can't happen in big tournaments, can't happen in slams, can't happen in the thousands. So any of the other tournaments, you know, it's just open season for business. That was terrific. Uh, moving into a fifth set, this sort of king of the court, where you just get to explain, if you were the king, how would you do it? Cheating in junior and college tennis is a totally out of control problem. And I'm curious to know what you think about it. I know what you think about it. I'd like you to talk about it. You see my head just goes down. It's, it's diabolical. By the way, Brad played college tennis before yeah. he turned pro. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's really, really sad. Like back in the day when I played college, there'd be guys yelling and there'd be intensity and obviously there'd be some line calls. There'd be some issues, same in the juniors. Now it's gotten to the point where, heck, you know, some sports, the line is out. In tennis, the line is in. But if you hit flush on the line on a big point, the line is out. And I've seen some of these kids that are calling balls that are absurdly in. And I understand it's in the corner. It's a, you can will sometimes something and, and miss it by one or two millimeters. But you see kids in college and, and the juniors deliberately cheating. They saw the ball, it landed. There wasn't even any line touched. And it's on three all point. And then what really just miss me, miss me, whether or not it's a coach, and especially some of these college coaches, and they're on the court and they watch it. So it, you gotta pull them aside and say, listen, you do that again, you're done for, you're, you're done. You're done for the day that, in golf they try to educate you in the honor system about keeping score for your, and that's the greatness of our sport. We all wanna win, two, two men enter, two women enter, and one wins, one loses, very simple. It just, it just drives me crazy, especially if a coach or parents are telling them that like, listen, if it's a big point and it's close, just call it out. It's like, no, if it's in, call it in, be honest. That's being a good person. They'll make you a better player, it'll make you a better person. But we must do something to figure this out. Cause the college, they're old enough to know better. And those coaches that don't do it, it really bothers me. I think maybe your card system could be, you know, yeah, you, well, yeah. you you run back that tape and you're cheating. Yellow you get the first, yellow and then you are gone. Second one red. Second red, you're out for a month. You're so, out. You're out. You're out. Yeah, you, you know better. When you're 18 and the ball doesn't hit inside the line and you call it out, you know better. So I don't have any tolerance for that. Uh, Brad Gilbert, the pleasure was ours. Uh, this is under review and you are released. Thanks, buddy. A big thank you to Brad Gilbert, and I want to thank everyone at the Malibu Racket Club. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our composer is Brian Senti. want to say thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back next time with one of the most unique personalities in the game who notoriously was kicked out of Wimbledon. Well, no, I walked out. You walked out. Yeah. There's a big difference existentially, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> ah, semantics. Anyway, check out our next episode for more semantics and tennis talk from an inside perspective. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>